hey, do you still have your poem that we were supposed to go through? Of course I do. Let's see, do I? It's been two weeks we were supposed to go through this, and we never did. <laughs> yes, Messiah Christmas portions. Uh, Here why, she is. Why did you give me a poem for for Christmas to go through and read? It's not Christmas time. <laughs> it's not Christmas time, but because it is a great poem that I think we were talking. You were talking about how do I become somebody who can read poetry? And, um, and I think this is a poem that is modern. So there's not archaic language. Um, it's, it is, um, the sort of thing that as Christians we can look at and find helpful, poignant. Um, so there's some, some of the, uh, you know, questions about, hey, is poetry useful or not? I think this poem shows how it how it communicates in a useful way. Um, it and uh, it's a beautiful poem, and it's got s- certain lines that have become a part of my vernacular. The you know the way that I think and um, communicate. So, yeah, it's and uh, and it's one that I, every Christmas it comes around. And I revisit it, um, and uh, you know, Christmas is always coming. That's one of the benefits of a calendar. <laughs> um, okay, so let's just—I don't want to forget this. Maybe we'll get to it. I don't even know if we will or not. But let's just hold off on this for a second because I want to hit some other things up first, and I want to get there first. By someone sent me a message on Facebook, and they said, "I've really been fascinated by the material on Knox Unplugged, particularly on cosmology." <clears throat> And how God designed the universe. I want to be able to think that I want to be able to think like that. And I want to ask if where I actually begin at, what would where would I start? What books would I get? Poetry lectures, what would be the um the place to really engage to build a biblical cosmology? Uh, well, I think um well, didn't you you guys just interviewed Michael Ward, right? Yes, we did. That was. I haven't gotten a chance to watch it yet. It's on my to do list today. Um, how did I, the interview go? I need about another hour and a half with Michael Ward. Like an ox unplugged with him, maybe? Yeah, that would be. Yeah, <laughs> that's what I want. You just I, yeah, let the whistle a little bit. Um, he he his book, uh, Planet Narnia, is really really great, and it, what is interesting about it is it's a book about C.S. Lewis's use of the medieval cosmology in his Narnia children's books. But what it does is it challenges us the assumptions that we bring to the table in a really helpful way. Because I think the first part of, of learning to have a biblical cosmology is learning to recognize cosmology recognize when you were talking about it, recognize when, what our assumptions are about it. And um, that book does that really well. There's another uh, book that has one chapter on cosmology called The Medieval Mind of C.S. Lewis. And the reason that everybody talking about cosmology in the Christian church right now is talking about C.S. Lewis at the same time is because he's the one that sounded the alarm, that waved the flags, that... Um, shouted from the rooftops 
hey, we've we've shifted our cosmology to a secular cosmology, and that's dangerous. Um, and nobody really listened at the time. He's got a really great. Uh, he has a really really helpful article or I essay. I think you'd call it called transposition um, about the nature of the universe, the cosmological nature of the universe um, being what's called theomorphic. And this is, I think, the heart of the question. Um, A theomorphic universe is a universe that reflects its creator. And um, that essay that called Transposition, it's one of my favorite Lewis essays. He he argues that um, the same way that if you had a a full choir with a symphony play play a piece of music um, and you experienced it and you said, oh man, this is amazing. And then you took that same piece of music and played it on the piano, transposed it for a single instrument uh, and played it on the piano, that creation is God, God's eternality, God's eternal nature transposed from symphony to piano, right? So um, that the nature of God is uh, is actually communicated, embedded into the way that it's created, but it's embedded in that sort of way. It's transposed mm-hmm. down to a, a different level, but it's the same melody, right? So um, that that God has is communicating to us his own nature, communicating to us himself as a creator through the creation and that, that the cosmos is that kind of thing. It's theomorphic. It's just, it's putting on display the nature of its creator. Uh, and then that's one of the joys of living in this place is it's a, the entire universe is shouting the praises, shouting the glory of God, shouting, let me tell you about who God is. Um, and, and uh, what we have done is um, we have accepted a worldliness in our cosmology mm-hmm. that closes our eyes. That I I, I think uh, um, it it scales over our eyes with dragon scales, uh, so that we actually lose the ability to see and hear God's. God's voice in creation. Was that a um, Narnia reference at Dragon Scale? It is, yeah. It is, yeah. <laughs> right. So we we need to be de-dragoned. Our cosmology needs to be de-dragoned. Um, yeah. And uh so th- there's all and there's all sorts of places where we just read the cosmological implications out of the text because of our our e- evangelical traditions, the modern American traditions. Give me an um, example of that. Give me an example of how we read the cosmology out of the text. Because of so because, because of our cosmologicalist viewing of scripture. Right. So uh Luke two I think is a good example where the yeah. the uh, the wise men are led by a star from the east to a particular house and it says, and then the star rested on the house or the star stood above the house. We, we just read that away. We just don't notice that a star has come down 
and that a star was guiding them personally. You, we act like they're doing some really crazy geometry or something, and that they're somehow able to use the stars to find a particular house. Um, that even even now that would be really right, basically impossible. Um, that'd be some really crazy math. Um, and they were better at math than us in the ancient world in a lot of those sorts of ways, but um, than our the average Joe on the street in our day. But the um, it's still uh, there's a there's a a living nature to everything um, out beyond the moon in the in the uh, biblical understanding, right? The stars there's a there's uh, there's a living being associated with the stars with each of the stars or with the, with either particular stars um, or the stars as a whole. Um, And we just read that out of the text. And this is, you know, the same book that I was referencing the voyage of the Don Treader. This was the, that was the book that I would say most baptized my little pagan imagination when I was a, a, you know, I didn't grow up going to church. I didn't, I was an atheist and, but I, I loved C.S. Lewis um, and the voyage of the Don Treader in particular. I read so many times that it literally just fell apart and I had to tape my copy back together. Um, and in there, there's a, a star. They stop at a, at a, an Island where there's a star living. And then the daughter of the star ends up marrying into the Narnian Royal family. It's a one. And it's so, it's, there's no, it, 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 yeah, I know, I know, but it's like the most, there is, it is the most romantic. I mean, it's, I, I, to, to this day, you know, my, I, um, my wife is Colville Indian and I call her my Indian princess, you know, and, um, because, but it's because the idea of marrying a princess from, of another people, it, it's all I, it's, it's, it was so central, you know, I made a list even as a Christian, here's 30 things I want in a wife. And one of them was, I want to marry somebody from a different tribe than me. Mm. Right? I didn't even know what it meant. I was just, you know, this romantic high school kid who was like, what do I want in a woman? I want to marry the princess of another tribe. Right. <laughs> and so when I um, met this girl and, you know, everything and my, you know, half the stuff on my list was dumb stuff like she has to like the NBA because I love basketball, you know? <laughs> but, and then there's these things like, and I want her to be a Native American princess. <laughs> and then she was, right? And so I meet this amazing girl and she's strong Christian and all this and then find out, and she's Colville Indian. And I'm like, everything, every one of the 30 things on my list. right? But it's the 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 romance of the voyage of the Dawn Treader is, was deeply embedded and shaped my imagination so that when I declared myself an atheist, I was more worried about losing Reepicheep than I was about losing Jesus at the time. Like Reepicheep wasn't going to be on my side anymore. And I was into Freud. And I remember reading Freud and having an argument at a friend's house in the basement about sex being just mating, right? I'm an eighth grader. And I was like, well, Freud says, right? It's exactly what you want your eighth grader saying, right? Well, Freud says that we're all deeply just motivated by our sexual drive and that it's really just mating and that all of these things that we've surrounded it with are, are, are not real and, and, and stopping and thinking, 
Reepicheep would run me through. He would throw me off the Dawn Treader. I don't have a place in the only place I've ever really wanted to live, which is Narnia. <laughs> okay. right? my, my, my imagination was fundamentally baptized by Narnia. And there, there is, and one of the, the there were two, um, uh, two of the most important scenes for me um, were one when, when Reepicheep chased Eustace around and spanked him for being, um, for being a, yeah. a disrespectful complainer, yeah. right? I was like, I never, I never want to be that kid. I will, doesn't matter what happens, I want to be the cheerful one. I want to be the one that says, what's the adventure? Right. So that, that, and then the other one was Ramondu's Island when um, they're standing there and he, and they learn that Ramondu is a star. And Eustace says, on our world, a star is a giant ball of burning gas. And he says, uh, even in your world, that's not what a star is. That's only what a star is made of. And that haunted me because. I knew that I was saying things along the lines of my um, I am just a set an electrified sack of wet mud, right? I'm, I am just a complicated germ. There's no difference between me and um, be, between me and uh, you, the, the germs that you know, um, cause an infection, you know, when you, when you cut your, toe there's the difference the only difference is i'm more complicated um or i was saying things like that and that ram and what ramandu said continually haunted me gk chesterton um in one of his uh, articles in the london news said if you want to change the, uh, people's definition of their neighbor start by changing the definition of the stars mm. right. right it's that um that we when we look up into the sky and we see that whatever it is that we see up there, we will turn and give ourselves the same definition. It's unavoidable. Um, it's the way, I mean, it's, we are, God imprinted onto us a look up and find out who you are so deeply that, it, that even the atheists will do it, right? So all of our sci-fi, I think this is one of the most important things that Christians can do is get in there and write some better sci-fi right right now all the sci-fi is being written by people with bad cosmological assumptions um and we need to but but there's but you know there's no um you don't solve it with a, a lecture series right because the the it was all formed it was formed by poetry in the first place you can't reform it without getting in there and writing better poetry, writing better stories, writing better sci-fi. So um, is, this, is this why, you know, um, okay. So, okay. I don't want to lose this. That's really good. Um, books, right. Poetry. Where does, where does yeah. this start at? You said um, Michael Ward's. Uh, seven, the, uh, yeah. The, so planet Narnia. So if you haven't read Narnia, Narnia is the place Narnia? to start. Right. But then if you want to understand why it is that Narnia works and is, is so moving, then planet Narnia explains the cosmology behind it. It, it explains the, the Christian cosmology that undergirds 
um, everything in Narnia. And then um, the medieval mind of C.S. Lewis has a really – and it might, that might be a better place to start. Um, there's a good chapter on on it summarizing basically everything that Michael Ward does in 350 pages. Um, he The uh, Jason Baxter does in the medieval mind of C.S. Lewis in about 40 pages. Okay, I gotta I gotta interrupt you and disagree with you. Um, <laughs> you need to read Narnia first. Narnia, uh, Planet have, Narnia first. No, you have to read Narnia. Yeah, first. you absolutely have to read Narnia first. You have yeah. to. I, I if if there's one thing, I'm going to buy a new set because we went through it and we've kind of ripped them to shreds in my house. I just read Narnia this year. Uh, I listened to the audio book of it from. Actually, I would recommend this series. It's about seventy bucks over at. Um, oh, who did the audio version of it? Um, christianbooks.com or you know it's focused on the family oh yeah yeah they did a whole they did the whole series the whole chronicles of narnia get the audio book me and dj i had to take my son to a clinic for head trauma um cognitive fx was a company great company and it was a 11 hour drive so it was um what was it 11 hours there 11 hours back and so i finished the series all but the last book which is the last battle um in that time and there was so much of that book that impressed upon me even deeper about cosmology and just even the books that people say i don't read this one first don't read that one like it didn't matter i'd read the whole thing it was all very good so i think you have to read narnia first and then you have to read the medieval mind of c.s lewis and then you have to read planet narnia yeah in that order which is like you're at what eleven books now at that point. Well, <laughs> uh, I, I think one of the things that's so amazing about the Chronicles of Narnia is they, there's a an, an, another audio version that they've put out recently as well because it's so popular that they got really famous, you know, high level actors to come and read it yep. because they. People that just say, oh, no, my gosh, I love it. It's so wonderful. I would love to be involved. And so they were able to get really high level, um, great actors to come and read it. And that, But it holds up over time. So I read it um, uh, in, in the second grade was the first time that somebody um, pointed me to it. I had a great elementary school librarian at Mullen Road Elementary, the public school, handed me Narnia, handed me um, Tolkien, handed me uh, Arthur. When I came back in and said, I want to read about King Arthur, they got me books on Arthur. Um, And uh, really, really formative stuff. Um, And then I reread it again uh, in my early 20s, and it was still incredible and amazing. There's a whole layer that I didn't know. Then I read it to my kids and there's a whole nother layer that you don't see until you see the eyes of a child light up as you read it to them. Um, and then I, you know, I've reread it a couple of times myself. I reread it this summer. Um, it's just, it's so amazing, um, that you can go back to it over and over. And that's what makes something a classic is you can go back to it over and over. Yeah. This one is radio theater. The Chronicles yeah, of that's a really good version. Yeah, that's one. What's this new one you said that you're talking about? Audible. Audible did a uh, got high level actors to do each of the 
books, a different mm-hmm. actor for each book. It's really good. Maybe I'll finish up in Audible. All right, so we got this Narnia. We have Medieval Minus C.S. Lewis. We have um, Planet Narnia, Michael Ward. <clears throat> Jason Baxter so, wrote uh, The Medieval Minus C.S. Lewis, right? Yeah. Yeah. And it, his introduction to uh, Dante's uh, Divine Comedy is really, really good as well. Um, yeah. And, and so what else do you put in that, that list to help develop a biblical cosmology? The first two chapters of the of G.K. Chesterton's biography of of uh, Saint Francis before he actually gets into the biography of Saint Francis, he gives an overview of the differences between um, the cosmology of the ancient world, the cosmology of the Middle Ages, and the cosmology of the modern world. So he he walks through. Oh, um, the in the ancient world you had a cosmology that was full and alive but it was a threat it was trying to kill you right and so you were afraid of it and then um in the middle ages the the cosmology was full and alive but it was under the feet of Jesus now and so um Fr- francis uh, i mean saint francis has a great uh poem uh, called Brother, Son, Sister, Moon. Uh, and it's about the, um, and he, he just says, there's nobody in the ancient world that could have written that poem because the sun and the moon and the, the stars and the gods and the, the planets and the world and the, the woods and the ocean, everything was trying to kill you. You were at war with the cosmos. Well, the cosmos really was at war with you. Um, it, it was, it was untamable and it was terrifying. Um, and so at, at best, if you sacrifice to the gods, they would leave you alone. Um, but so he says, what does it take to get to St. Francis saying to the sun and the moon? Hey brother, Hey sister, let's go to church together. Come on. You what does it take to change the relationship between us and creation to the point where it's no longer us versus creation, but it's uh, us bringing creation to its intended end. Uh, Us suddenly having this dominion relationship with fellow creatures, right? So the, and the, it says, that's the, that's the big difference in the middle ages. The, you looked around at the, at the cosmos and it was a fellow creature with you. Right. You were the same kind of metaphysical being. We were both created. And so um, and, and since it was now under the dominion of Jesus, it had been restored to its proper place as uh, uh, under the dominion of a man, the man, Jesus Christ. Uh, th- um, and we were in Christ. Our relationship to creation had been restored and we were no longer afraid of it. Um, but we could now. um uh, bring it to its intended end. He said, that's the difference. That's the cosmological difference that it took to then have the scientific revolution, which really happens in the middle ages. People try and say it happened later, but the scientific revolution really happens in the middle ages. There's a change in relationship between us and creation. And we um, say we can actually get hold of it, transform it and use it for the love of our neighbor. All right. So that was 
Chesterton's uh, first two chapters in St. Francis. Uh, yeah. Yep. Okay. What else? And what else? This is. You know, can can I ask you? It's so here's something. As you were talking, I was thinking about. Man, I got so much stuff here loaded. I want to talk. I got stuff all over the place. Dante's open and questions. And, um, but somehow we're just going down this track, and I'm going to do it because this is what I do. Uh, and you were just talking. I was thinking about James chapter five and the metaphysical realities. I think we talked a little bit about this before. But when you start having the proper understanding, the metaphysical understanding of the planets, of who you are, um, basic metaphysical, what is the thing? What is it for? Then you get and start reading your Bible. You look at James and he he's saying, hey, remember Elijah? He was a man just like you were. And he prayed fervently and that it wouldn't rain and it didn't rain. Yeah. And he's using this example. <laughs> he's like, and he prayed again that it would rain and God caused it to rain. And, you know, you look at that and he's making this connection between the, this prophet and you and prayer, <laughs> you know, and the metaphysical realities of that, that there is this connection in prayer to God for things agreeable to his will that you can pray that has to do with the very makeup of nature and God will then listen to you for things in accordance to his will, and that, that that will be done. And it has even can do with the control in the weather. And man, that is, that is talk about an enchanting thought. Right. Yeah. Right. That's, like, that's a different, world it's, a, it's a different kind of world. Yeah. It's um, absolutely a different kind of world where your prayers to God control the weather. Right. Like, Ooh, well, do you pray like that? And, um, and that the weather responds means that the, the weather is responsive, including to things like, well, why, why is it that he could pray? Well, it's because of the sin of Israel, because of the sin in particular of Ahab and Jezebel. Right. 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 So. The weather heard the prayers, you know, I mean, God heard the prayers directly and then directed the weather and, but, but looked at the sin of Ahab and Jezebel and said, yeah, let's shut that off. Right. Oh man. You know, so now so with, with that in mind, with the sin that we see right now in our current world and this whole push towards globalism, you know, why would we think with that kind of sin that God wouldn't hear the prayers of a righteous man, fervent prayers of a righteous man to shut it down. You know, <laughs> <laughs> right, right. It's not like we don't have that type of Jezebel sin still happening in our culture and the world. I just wonder if we have the type of man who are praying against it. Yeah. I, this is this. So I was thinking about this just the other day um, because um, when you learn the um I, I can't remember were you I think you maybe sent me an interview where somebody was saying, let me tell you about these political parties that I was going to and you had to like at the door they were taking blood samples and stuff. Was this was that you that sent me that? It was very, and I, it, it was a very strange interview where this person was like, you realize that they, they like do I want in well, it was 
this the that the culture oh, yeah. do that. I don't remember what it was, but I remember saying yeah, like the culture the culture of the leadership um and it, this isn't the first time cuz you you look at the early 19 late 18 early 1900s you had something similar happen with um a lot of the leaders in the west getting really interested in the the occult um and the so you have and so the wealthy the occult amongst the wealthy became um normal Right. It, it got so to the point where amongst the very, very wealthy in Europe and America, um, the occult was just something that you would run into. So you go over to a wealthy you know, middle aged woman's house and they'd have a seance, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and this person was saying something similar you know, is going on right now. They, they weren't saying something similar, but they were the, what they were describing. I thought, oh, I've heard of this before. Um, you read about this in the history of, um, you know, in, in that that 18th century, the history of Romanticism, late Romanticism, um, that became modernity was very um, much into magic and the occult and and um, uh, all of that. So, and I was thinking, it's, this is just this is the Epstein stuff, right? Mm-hmm. This is not this isn't separate because the occult uh, is. A lot of it has to do with um, sexual control, sexual uh, magic, that the magical understanding ends up having um, a sexual component all the time. It's just there's something that we we think uh, we want to we want to turn sex into a religious experience, into a into a power magic type of thing. Yeah. Uh, whereas in the Bible, it's not a religious thing. I mean, sex is not a, it's, it, it's a, a, in a, the realm of the home and the, the realm of economics and the, you know, the, the economics in the traditional sense is part of the home, not a part of the church. Um, you know, Toby, Toby did a really good sermon series on Leviticus. And in this, I think he's at Leviticus 20, something and he does a really good job of of walking through and talking about how that uh leviticus forbids you to try and find life in other things can't find life in the blood can't find life in pagan sacrifice you can't find life in sex right and um the beautiful thing is when you serve god and you put things in its proper place and, and you love the things the way that got the metaphysical realities, right, of loving things for what it is and how it's supposed to be used. Those things bring forth life because God, you have right relationship with God right. and then God blesses you through these gifts and these gifts give you life. Right. <laughs> they give you families, right. they give you all these things. And so what if you're a pagan, you're like and you see this and you want to disconnect God, you remove God and you're like, if I can get life from doing all these acts. Right. You know, yeah. that I that that and, and you can get control over it directly. Yeah, that's right. Because now I'm right. God. And so I. am Right. Yeah. So rather than being on the receiving end, you become the you you're you're trying to get into the driver's seat rather than um, you know, just just be in, in the delivery truck in the back. Uh, but there's but it, it doesn't actually work. It doesn't actually get you there. But so and but I was thinking this is we've got Ahab Jezebel 
leaders everywhere, all over the place, in every different mm-hmm. um, layer, you know, in every different institution. We've got this Ahab and Jezebel leadership. Um, you know what happens is economic collapse, right? It's not a surprise. Exactly. No, you're yeah. exactly. So oh, you that, think, okay, oh, well, so yeah, collapse. there's a. You get, you get land curses. Exactly. <laughs> right. That's. That's exactly what it is. I mean, that's that's what it is. Biblically speaking, yeah, is is the 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 land starts saying, "I think I'll spit you out," because right? it's still in relationship with God, right? Right. So, <laughs> uh, it's like I'm with Jesus. You guys are stopping being with Jesus. I'm going to go ahead and and uh, launch wow. you. <laughs> All right. So. This is this is interesting. I, I wanted we were talking about fascism the other day, um, and I wanted to ask you like, what is fascism? Because Be- um, I, I it's being used. You you heard about um, Georgia Maloney? No, I mean just oh. a, a tad bit. She's the Italian new Italian prime minister, right? New Italian prime minister. There we go. Okay, are we back? Yeah, yeah. And so she she's the. She's got everybody. I mean, she's got all the conservatives and liberals kind of in a little bit of panic. So some of the conservatives are loving, like a lot of the conservatives are loving her. But they all using this kind of um, language. I even I saw it on Fox. I saw it on um, MSNBC. Everybody's using it. There hasn't been a more conservative, right leaning leader since Mussolini, right? And it's like, wait, they're saying Mussolini was right leaning. Uh yes, the dude was a leftist to his the bottoms of his feet. I don't understand. Yeah. They said it hasn't been a fascist, a a right wing, um, far right group this far since Mussolini. So fascism, fascist, the whole nine. You know, man, We're, Italy yeah. must be really far left if fascism is to the right of it. <laughs> but the thing is, is that nobody seems to know. I, like, there's not a definition of this word. That's I, I'm, this Jonah Goldberg's liberal fascism. I recommend everybody grab that too because it's a great book. Uh, but he he kind of goes through and shows that fascism just isn't something that's um, left. It actually has its concern in the right as well. But. I, um, even he was struggling somewhat to deal with the definition of what fascism actually is. But I've talked to you plenty of times before, and you seem to have a decent definition of fascism. So I was like, man, we should talk about like what is fascism? Yeah, because fascism is a, a leftist economic situ- uh, theory of government rule where corporations and the government combine to rule a people. Right. So, um, so in communism, you get rid of money, um, and that's the that's what it looks like for uh, a, a communist regime, right? You get your everybody gets their ticket for the same loaf of bread, the same um, you know the the same uh, pair of pants, the same shirt you know every everybody gets everything the same because everybody's of the same value and so everybody should have the same economic situation except the people up at the top right because some uh people are more equal than others so <laughs> thank uh, you <laughs> yeah thank you are well 
Um, but the uh, but in fascism, what happens is the corporations combine with the government, and the government and the corporations make uh, the rules together, and so. Uh, often a lot of money is made by people at the top. Um, and uh, so it, sometimes you call it, cro- you know, I've heard people call it crony capitalism, or, but that's just fascism, right? That that idea that the, the corporation has access to the government and it can help make laws that benefit one corporation over another or benefit the, the corporations over against the, the population. Um, so the problem with defining fascism that way is suddenly America starts to look like a fascist government. Real quick. Real, right, real quick. Real quick. So um, you mentioned, uh, hey, can we talk about fascism? And I was like, uh, right before we got on, and I was like, oh, yeah, let me show you, though, Merriam-Webster's definition. This is what happens. Um that uh, when you have fascists that want to be able to hide, and so they uh, buy the dictionary by Merriam-Webster so that they can do things like this. Fascism, a political philosophy, movement, or regime regime that ex- exalts nation and race above the in- individual and stands for a centralized autocratic government headed by a dictatorial leader. Uh, severe economic and social regimentation and forcible suppression of opposition. There, it's not an economic. There's nothing mentioned about economics in there. They've just changed the definition of fascism to racist, right? They've changed the definition of fascism to Nazi. The problem is, Hitler was a socialist. He was a national socialist. He wasn't a fascist um, in that sense. Now, he he did employ oh, fascists. You, you have to go back to it. You said there's nothing mentioned in there about an economic structure. Yeah, not, so nothing men- mentioned about an economic structure. Um, it they What they turn it into instead is uh, that it's racism, right? That to be fascist, you have to be a, a, a racist, Right, and that's what fascism is. Um, but that that way they can just say, "Hey, everyone over there that is a, being a fascist." That that way we know they're actually racist, right? Oh. Because racism, right? So it's a um, so instead of saying, "Well, it's an economic system that functions this particular way," and you can objectively point out what it. Um, are, do the corporations have undue influence on the formation of laws? Are lo- are there laws being written that that benefit one corporation over another corporation, or benefit large businesses over small businesses? Which is usually how fascist regimes take over. They write laws that benefit large corporations, and then the large corporations are easier to control. And okay, the so- large corporations and the government work together to get rid of small businesses and. Okay, wait, 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 whoa. So then lobbying and lobby groups move us into a more fascist government. Is that what that is doing? Corporate lobby groups, yeah. Right. So lobbyists that work on behalf of corporations are that's like Walmart works this way. 
Mm-hmm. Like some of the things they do, right? They want laws passed. Yep. Okay. And the and they- um, the fuel industry works this way. The um, the EV uh, electric vehicle industry right now is that's one of the main ways that fascism is gaining ground in America is through the electrical electric vehicle. Uh, so yeah, how? I, how the, go ahead. So right now, um, if you, um, I suspect there's something going on with the Beyond Meat thing as well, but I haven't tracked it down. Um, but when all of a sudden every single um, car manufacturer says, hey, we're going to do an electric vehicle this year, you should say, hmm, I wonder what tax benefit or um, incentive. incentive is being used to get them all to do it. Well, lo and behold, there's a tax benefit and an incentive given to any car manufacturer that decides to create an electric vehicle. And then they get to keep the profits of the electric vehicle that the government paid to develop through the corporation, right? The corporation developed it with government money, and then they get to keep the profits. So um, it's basically free money, um, free R and D money. If you develop a, an electric vehicle, Tesla is the only one that didn't, which is why when they celebrated the electric vehicle, they didn't invite Elon Musk because he didn't take government money, even though he developed a great electric car as electric cars go. I think electric cars are a bad idea, but, um, but it's still a fun toy. I mean, a Tesla is a fun toy, um, for the, for the rich and they, uh, it's a terrible idea if you're using it for more than a commute around the block. But, um, the reality is gasoline is still the most um, efficient you know, per pound per square inch source of energy um, outside of nuclear power that there is. And gasoline has done more to bring the uh, people out of poverty than anything since coal. And um, we should be celebrating the fact that there are, that people are no longer impoverished. Instead what we're doing is saying, we're going to pay to develop electric cars, which as of right now are not efficient. They're not, they, they're not going to um, benefit people in the long run. There's a, uh, the way that we gather up our, the, the uh, products necessary to create the batteries is really destructive on the environment. It's, you know, strip mining process. And whereas we can get oil out of the ground, really fracking, um, cleanly right it's it causes very few problems um the the discussions about whether or not um carbon dioxide in the air uh is causing problems i think are that's where we need to be doing the science and figuring out is that true or not um rather than uh saying let's switch to electric vehicles which we know cause all sorts of problems, right? Which is going to cause all sorts of problems. Um, We, uh, I mean, unless we switch over to nuclear, right? If we switch everything over to nuclear and we get a nuclear powered electricity, um, then I say, let's create all the electric vehicles that we can. And, um, and I'll, then I'll go get a Tesla. 
So I, I like I can afford a Tesla. <laughs> but but, but initially it'd probably be cheaper. Right. Well, that's the thing is is you've you have a supply a supply chain issue with electricity that you right now and you you already have it. Um, uh, you don't and, and but what they've done what the what the fasc, what fascism does is says well if you have a if you have a supply chain issue with electricity. Um, and but we really want to be able to benefit these particular corporations over here. What you get in fascism is let's pass laws that cause supply chain issues for gasoline. Right. Mm. So that's a fascist way of thinking that says we can cause supply chain issues for gasoline. And then these this corporation benefits from the law that corporate over against that corporation because this corporation is playing along with the government or the current regime in a way that that one isn't right and so corporations end up being used against one another um or laws being able corporations get the opportunity to use laws against one another um in a way that helps them build power and builds a build a future income. Now, who is it that suffers? It's always the consumer, the populace, the population, the people suffer. Uh, um, and there are people that there are certain people that benefit from the corporations, but the wealthier get wealthier and the, the poor get poor and the middle class goes away in fascism. That's a, um, that's historically what's always happened. Um, but when we change the definition of fascism, we can hide it in plain sight. That's what. And so they go off and they buy the dictionaries and they change the definitions to fascism is those people over there that we don't like. So, Jason, I've been reading this book. I haven't even told you about this one, but this book, it's called The Rape of the Mind. Um, and in this particular chapter, um, he's got some great chapters in here, but with this one on political conditioning I think it's political condition. It might be mass conditioning through um, speech. That's what it was. It was mass conditioning through speech, which is the chapter right before that. Um, the author says, he who is master of the words um, is master of the mind. So he who is master of the words we use is master of our mind. Yeah. It's funny because I, we were talking about that with the dictionary saying how, why you need to use a dictionary so that you can learn to master words so that you can learn to master communication so that you can learn to be a good steward and communicate well. Well, they're using this in order to be able to keep people in prisoners, right? So if they right. can change the definition of what um, fascism is inside of our dictionaries, then they can control how we think. We don't think about fascism actually for what it truly is. It's kind of like a magic trick. Pay attention to this hand right. and don't pay attention to my other hand that's robbing you. So how would you go about finding a, a, a true definition of fascism if all the dictionaries you currently have are pushing you outside right. of? Uh, First, you go get older dictionaries. That's I mean, what I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, yeah. that's um, a big part of it because uh, there the word – so fascism comes from – uh, the Italian word, which comes from the Latin word for bundle of sticks. Um, and it, so it's, it's a, uh, and the word came into the political vernacular through unions bundling their powers together 
right? We're when we bundle our powers together as a union, um, we, you know, you can, it's though you can break one stick, but you can't break a bundle of sticks, um, is the idea behind fascism. Uh, and then I believe Mussolini, uh, he was the, the party supported by all of the unions. And so they were the fascist party. They were the party, um, that all of the, the, uh, unions supported. Um, but Mussolini was big on, um, ruling, through, uh, I'm sorry. Oh. I, when we, I'm, I know you probably said the most brilliant thing you said when we <laughs> bundle, that's the last thing I caught when we bundle, uh, when we bundle sticks, was that? Yeah. Talking, yeah. So, yeah. uh, the, it's an Italian word. Uh, I believe it's fasci or fasci is a bundle of sticks and it came into the political vernacular through, uh, the use of, through unions, unions saying we are the sticks bundled together. And so we can't be broken. Right. right. So you, one of each of us separately might be broken, but we're going to bundle the sticks together. We can't be broken. And then the unions supported uh, Mussolini. And so they became the fascist party. But um, Mussolini was uh, he was a you know, a corporatist. Right. He, he was he he was kind of a rule by um he, well he he actually thought that you know if you can just set up a, a system of government where every single person was a replaceable cog uh so you can have a dmv and doesn't matter who you hire the dmv just has a system through which you go and get your license the um the the that there if you want to cut hair you have to this is the paperwork you fill out right um that that was the way he was going to turn it into a machine, turn turn um, the government into a machine that ran, you know, um, ran smoothly. So he it was a it was a it was a whole theory of the of the uh, uh, a whole metaphor system where the government can run like a machine, um, and that's that's uh, you know socialism is is big on that that metaphor system for governments so they invented bureaucracy on purpose right so so the governments weren't bureaucratic until mussolini who his right hand man in, invented bureaucratic government right so um you know every time we go to the dmv i have to resist you know just commenting on the fascism all around me um, but but that's what it is, right? You buy the D. I mean, I don't know how it works everywhere else, but in in Washington, you buy a license to be a DM to to be the people that give out licenses on behalf of the government. And as long as you follow their system, um, any any company can buy that license, but they give out a certain number. You know, um, it was the same with taxis in New York. There's a certain number, but you have to buy the right to have a taxi company in New York, uh, buy a taxi medallion. And, um, it's, it's fascism because that way it can be controlled by the government and the number of taxis that's al- that are allowed on the street is controlled by the government. And so it's a central economic, central, con- centrally controlled economic system at the national level. Communism was international. 
control, right? They wanted international economic control rather than national economic control. But they all agreed because they were leftists. They all agreed or they were on the left end of the political spectrum. They all agreed that the government should control the economy, not not the family. Right. That was the that was the difference between conservatives and but, the left at the time was who the government should control the economy. But if we're if we're worried about words and etymology, just the word economics itself should tell you who controls what. Right. Because right. yeah. <laughs> just the word itself right. law is is telling you who's in charge of the flow of money. <laughs> uh, but but you, this is where you got to remember your Machiavellian understanding is there can only be one authority in a Machiavellian understanding. Right. So anything that you're either uh, if you're going to have control over reality, right, then you have to have you have to centralize the power into one place, one person, one system, one um and and to argue to, to to argue should it should that centralized government be a bureaucracy like Mussolini says or should it be a, a tyranny like uh Lenin you know or, or Stalin said is to argue semantics within a Machiavellian mm. assumption assum, assumption system the the problem is Machiavelli, came into the vernacular of the uh, conservative movement in America um, through National Review. And I love, I think Buckley was a great benefit, but the National Review um, early on brought in a purposeful Machiavellian who was one of the, uh, one of the guys that formed the understanding of the conservative party um, leading up to Reagan. Right. So so fascism or, or that Machia, the Machiavellian assumptions that you've got to gather the power, right, that you can't spread the power. So that's in a in a, a Christian understanding. Power power is shared, spread and layered. Right. Authority is shared, spread, layered. You, um, that jurisdictions are shared, spread, layered. That's what you do with power. Um uh, in a Machiavellian understanding, it's gathered um, to to the smallest, tightest circle that you can, because then you can control reality. Machiavelli got into the conservative wing of the of American politics in the fifties and sixties, and where has and now everybody's dealing in Machiavellian categories. You know, we it's no. And fascist category, yeah. And fascist category. Well, but the, but this is where you've got people. You do have, um, you do have now. You know, international communism on the rise again. It's it's, um, so. But but you've also got because of technology, you've got an international form of fascism as well that is new. Um, it, because it used to be yeah. understood that. The world was too big, and so if you're going to control economies, you have to control them on smaller scales. So you had people arguing for controlled economies at the at the the county level 
in the Middle Ages. Um, so th- the argument for a controlled economy is not new. The idea that you could do it at a national level is is what was new, uh, and that's because you you know you had the you had communication the possibilities of communication grow. Now you've got people arguing for an international form of fascism that says that you can have a corporate, you can have international corporations that work together with international lawmakers um, and international currencies and all of that. It's just, a, it's just fascism now at the scale um, that we think we can run the whole world with a controlled economy. You can't, so, it never works. So no, that, no, there, but okay. I want to get back to that too. Maybe, maybe I'll get this poem. I don't think we're ever going to get there. Uh, that's okay. Uh, no, we're not going to get to the solution. We're going to spend all our time talking about the problem. Well, <laughs> <laughs> well, in some sense, I'm understanding the problem because of, of, um, through the solution. Right. So, you were, t- we're talking about cosmology still. Um, but I want to switch just a little bit and say, we when we talked about globalism, I called you and asked you, I think I was going on Whitlock to talk about globalism. And you told me, you said, real simple sentence, globalism is a Trinitarian heresy. Right. It stuck with me. And everybody needs to go back and listen to that show. It's the shortest show we've ever done, 27 minutes, I think, because you had to go somewhere. And I called you while you were grabbing groceries or something for the house. Everybody needs to listen to that. I was packing packing for summer vacation. Right, that's right. You were going out of town. But that that definition of globalism is one of the best definitions I've ever heard. But what was interesting about it was that you tied a political word and idea into a theological world, which when you track that, me is is kind of how I think I want to start. I think we all need to be thinking, which is. What is the way that God structured the world? What is the theological, the the general revelation, the special revelation, and then the outworking downstream of that into politics? Where does that where does that go to? What is broken here that creates a globalistic idea? Well, there's a trinitarian break right between economic and um, what is it? Uh, economic ontological and, and ontological realities, yeah. right? And so you mess that up, and so you get globalism. All right, because you you and so you're broken about your whole universe is broken. So when you get to fascism, is that is fascism also have a theological breakdown in it as well? Yeah, so it's it's got that the same um it, it it's got the same anthropology, but it's working out in a different direction. So in the um the the breakdown, the anthropological breakdown is that our ontological value is connected to our our economic uh station right so and economic station meaning your position in society um which now we tend to only view as how much money somebody makes so um but it used to be that there were uh, lots of different possible stations in life and it involved um you know excuse me, the family you were a part of, it involved the county you were from, it involved what you did for work, the guild you were in. There were all different aspects to your societal position. We have, right? Yeah, we have one and we argue about what that one thing is. So CRT says it's skin color, period, 
right? This is why um, it really is, is well, skin color or skin color and sex, skin color. Yeah. Skin color and sex. Right. Um, And the, um, but on, on, in most conservatives, that's not as much of a temptation, but our, our temptation is instead to say, no, instead it's economics. And I've heard people say, no, it's economic differences that, that, uh, that you're, that what you're talking about. Um, but there's a, there are the economic differences are real, but the economics don't touch the ontology. So the value of our person, the value of our being is an ontological question that is not affected by economics. Mm. Now, um, in a Gnostic understanding of a per of personhood, um, we can move up and down the ontological chain of being based on our economic place in society. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's right. We've talked about that. Yeah. Yeah. So what Karl Marx, so Karl Marx is a Gnostic. Pause right there. That's really good. I don't want to miss that because in our previous conversations, we've done a lot with Gnosticism and talked about Gnosticism and it hasn't come up a lot more recently, even though that's still a part of our conversation. Gnosticism moves you on the ontological scale. Right. Right. That's the, that's the, that's the belief. That's, that's what makes it uh, tempting to people. Right. Because it's it's, not true. It doesn't actually work that way. Right. Because it really is a breaking of the first and second commandment. That's really what it is in Gnosticism. You can be God and you're worshiping yourself, which is breaking the first commandment, right? False worship. So that's what, so that what Gnosticism plays in this part is on the ontological side. Oh, that's really interesting. Okay. Sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. So, um, so, Hegel, Karl Marx uh, are are Gnostics, anthropo- anthropological Gnostics. Where it's a restoration of of Gnosticism, and so uh, what Karl Marx says is where we sit economically has a direct ontological value. Uh, def- defines our economic our ontological value because all people ought to be ontologically treated as equals. We've got to make economic equality um we've got to enforce economic equality so he says that the economics moves us up and down the ontology but we net we need to uh, but that's not good because people are equal so we need to make them economically equal to solve the problem of this ontological inequality in society um, fascism ha- says these people have more money, therefore they're more valuable, but it's the same error, right? The same error is the connection of the economic, uh, position in society with the ontological value. Um, and that's a Trinitarian heresy, right? So, well, fa- uh, so fascism buys into the worldview of Marx and all the same Gnostic, yeah, the same Gnostic view. That's why it's that's why it's all uh, left. That's why it's all on the left politically is because it has that cosmology, um, yes, of of the left, right? So that and that was originally the difference between conservatism and progressivism was the cosmological 
differences, right? That that was that um, in the 18, uh, 17, 1800s, um, that was what that was being argued over. So when Nietzsche comes along and he says, look, everybody has now bought into, if we can get everybody to buy into this new cosmology, then we won't even have to argue against the existence of God. All we'll have to do is give a reasonable explanation of where, uh, how God was invented and people will conclude on their own that God doesn't exist because we have a new cosmology in which there is no room for God. So he's making the assumption that it's inescapable that once you change a cosmology, a cosmology pushes you in a particular direction, period. Yeah. It doesn't matter. There's no, yeah, it's unavoidable. And so when Freud comes along and he writes, um, he, so Freud was the one that actually wrote the, um, the argument down that God, uh, that where God came from was father hunger. We had, we were, we were hungry for a father beyond our father. And so we invented the great father in the sky um, that people were like, Oh, that kind of makes sense. There's not really room for God in this cosmology anyway. And they just pulled the, pulled the eject cord and walked away from God. So Nietzsche was right in his argument that once we've convinced them of the cosmology, we don't need to actually even make it a reasonable argument against God's existence because then the, the, they'll go around saying, well, prove to me God exists because the assumption of the center is that he doesn't. And that's embedded in the cosmology, which they argued for with art, poetry, and story, not with philosophy. So what is the heresy of fascism? Trinitarian still? It is. It's the same fair. It's the same. So globalism is just global fascism versus national fascism. It's the same, Uh, the same heresy that the people at the top are more valuable because they've got more money. And so the people at the bottom are expendable. You know what? This is this. So when you start reading, was it, oh, I can't remember what, is it James that tells you not to have a respecter of person? Mm-hmm. Right? Comes like treat people ontologically uh-huh. the absolute same. It doesn't matter what their economic realities are. You don't take the poor man and say, because he's poor, I'm going to put him up here. Right. You don't take the rich man and say, I'm going to put him down here or up here. That is not how you engage with the poor. You treat them ontologically. It's funny. All of this is inside of our our Bible and the and but we are still missing it when it comes. So we get that in some senses when it comes to how we see the poor. We have, but then when it comes to how we economically react to the poor, we break down. Right. Here's the point: when we see poor people. The first thing we assume about them is that they can't work and that we need to give them everything. And yeah. so we remove the image of God from that person and give them a different ontological standing. We were just talking about this on the show when it comes to the illegal immigrants. So people just dropping them off everywhere and everybody's trying to be moving around. It's like, well, a human being that can get from one part of the country to the other part of the country has the ability to work. They're still made in the image of God. <laughs> Treat them like that. Right. Just because their economic standings might be less than ours doesn't mean that they're not human still. Yeah, and that you know our immigration system is is broken. Um so it 
it's not it's not currently functioning well um and we tend to want to um use that against the immigrants rather than fix our problem <laughs> but if 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 you have somebody who says i want to i want to immigrate in and um we're, we're supposed to say okay here's the legal system that you're going to live under and um here's where the economic opportunities are, or you can create your own. Right. You know, um, and as long as they're willing to live under the, uh, the, the legal system and then they're a blessing, right. That's, that's a biblical understanding. Now the, the problem with our system right now is mostly that, um, immigration is, is, unpredictable the the way immigrants are going to be treated is unpredictable because they're not a treated treated according to the law they're treated as a political pawn by everyone right that's everyone. that's wrong everyone. right that's a sin that's a i think that's a, a a national or a a uh civil sin civic sin that our country is committing um that we need to repent of and and be forgiven for by Jesus and then put the law right and get just. But right now, um, because we're in this Machiavellian understanding that getting the power is the important thing, getting the power into the right spot and the right person over it is the important thing. Um, we are willing to use people that don't have economic resources, uh, misuse them because they're less important or they're, they're not, they don't have the same sort of value. Um, and that's, that is, that is a, not a Christian way to live, not a Christian way to act. Um, Jason. Okay. We'll have to talk about immigration on an, I want to talk about that. Give that a whole show. Cause I think there's a lot there to our cosmology that um, has us operating the way we currently are both left and right. Yep. Yeah. But what sorts of cosmological, errors do we share with fascism that we don't know right so because what I, then i want to go back and talk about what is then what kind of cosmology then fights fascism right because right. you know what i mean yeah that's a really good yeah. question because um yeah, i know what about myself <laughs> because i think what you have is um the is the the cosmological assumptions are that the world functions like a machine. That's what we talk um, about. Yeah. yeah. And that, that machine understanding um, is that, uh, that you can. Uh, so, and it's, it, so this also depends on what you mean by we. Um, I, when I say we, I'm, I'm thinking of, you know, most of the time I'm thinking of Christians who, yeah, are in who are not seeing it because I always think if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, then will I hear from heaven right. and heal their land. I'm not so much concerned about the pagans. I'm concerned about the Christians that are floating along the process and not seeing it either. So I feel like if we can right. get ourselves together and get a right biblical cosmology, then the little I mean, there was always light in Goshen. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, and this is um so uh, because when we tend to think uh, like a machine, we treat people like cogs and 
and then we fight over who gets to control the machine um, mm. and uh, who gets to tell the cogs where to be and what to do. Um, a, a really good example um, of this that I saw down in California, I may have told this story, which had a really large Christian-owned fruit farm. And um, what they uh, – and they brought folks in uh, from uh, – Mexico, Central America, South America, all over to um, to pick for them. And uh, they treated them like people, right? And, um, and a lot of the farms around the area didn't. And so when it came time, a good example of what would happen a lot uh, amongst the fruit farms in California is when it was that you didn't know when your last paycheck was, um, but you knew you wouldn't get it. You just didn't know when it was going to be, but you knew you wouldn't get it because they would call in um, the ICE uh, to raid rather than pay the last paycheck to the pickers. Right? It was just a standard practice amongst um, the farms. But the Christian-owned farm with the, that was run by uh, a gentleman, the 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 the, the Christian-owned farms um, didn't do that, so they would. So they would have people line up wanting to work for them because they wouldn't get a uh, they knew they would get their last paycheck. They knew that everything that they would be treated with respect. They also kept a um, a, a dentist and a doctor. And so the families got uh, while they were there, they got the medical care. They got dentistry. Right. Because um, it was easier than uh, it, it was. It was. Uh, easier than trying to they, they didn't want them to have to depend upon the government to go get their medical care um, mm. but they uh, because they they knew one they wouldn't you wouldn't they wouldn't use it um, as much right but so they the entire time the entire picking season um, they they kept a dentist there that that were cleaning kids' teeth the entire time right so they were cleaning uh, uh, making sure that they had the medical care they needed they 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 because they treated them like humans now in a job we always are asking you know is there medical care do you get medical care with a job you go, right? right and um but when you're dealing with immigrants coming in and out of the country um it doesn't work quite the same but they wanted to provide the same cert, the the same sort of thing because they were dealing with people just like you would be dealing with people if you were dealing with middle class families that you were hiring to come into an office and you um, you get the medical insurance and um, but it's a different situation they creatively came up with what does it look like to treat these people the same way when I can't just buy the medical insurance right so they said what we know about them comes from the scriptures mm. we got people here we've got men uh, with families what do we what how do we show respect and that we value a man that we hire to come in to work at the office? Well, we give him, we give him benefits, right? So how do we provide benefits to these folks that don't have the same sort of access? What we bring them the doctor, we bring your, so it's a, that mindset that's um, that says, what does it look like to show this person the honor 
um, based on their ontological being as someone made in the image of God is the question that we ask to undermine that um, Hegelian you know, <laughs> communist uh, uh, un- uh, cosmology. Um, okay. With us being so baptized in that Hegelian cosmology, we talked a little bit about how earlier about the kind of the things that we need to be reading, some books to help us have a more biblical cosmology. You know, one of the things that I've noticed too is um, if, if the law of God does not present itself to you when you work through these questions, you're doing it wrong. So as soon as you start talking about um, how do we treat these people when it comes to business in this farm? Only thing I, the first thing that came to my mind, you shall not steal, right? Like, and, and, oh, yeah. we, right? <laughs> that's the first thing that came to mind. But, and, but there's, but there's a, a way of, of treating thou shall not steal as what can I get away with? That's the problem. And, yeah. And treating thou shall not steal as Jesus interprets it as, so what does it look like? then what's the opposite of stealing? It's working for the benefit of your neighbor, right? It's looking for ways to be generous. Uh, you know, do, uh, you who used to steal, instead work with your hands so that you can be generous, right? That generosity is the opposite of theft rather right. than, in a, in a Christian cosmology, rather than not stealing being the opposite of stealing. So, you know, that's the thing. We have truncated because of our cosmology, even the law. Mm-hmm. Yep. One of the things that we've talked about a lot on here is that when people hear the law of God, they hear the law of God as, um, I don't mean this in the influence of the law. I mean this as a feeling of the law, that it's negative against me more than it is a map of perfect love and righteousness. And right, right. So there is in the law, civilly, a negative sense to which the law is not trying to make a bunch of other laws you have to do in order to fulfill it itself. It is a negative law in sense, in the sense that it is not trying to allow harm civilly in one sense, in the civil matter to another individual. But as a Christian, when you look at the cosmological realities of it, the law, when it's saying don't steal, there's also a positive side to saying seeking the good of, for someone else in duty. So inside the Western Confederate, go ahead. But this is where the cosmology question kicks in as well, is because you can say that there is a civil, there's a civil coercive response to somebody that's stealing, but there's no civil coercive response to somebody that's not being generous. Right. Right. Yeah. And and so and I think that's where Christians their cosmology, um, uh. If they're if they if they've still got the Machiavellian cosmology, they when they see "Thou shalt not steal," they think, "Okay, we've got we can coercively respond to thou shalt not steal." And, and then when they say, "And it means you should be generous," they say, "And we can coercively respond to thou ought to be generous." But there's a, a uh, but that's a Machiavellian way of thinking. That's what I mean by the conservatives in the fifties and the sixties get into this. Machiavellianism, because you start having, um, in you start having um, the 
the, hey, we're going to go down and we're going to bust up. We've got alcoholism is a problem. We're going to go down and and break into the liquor store and break all of the bottles of whiskey. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's everything is external in fascism, uh, right. in, in Machiavellianism. Right. Versus a growing love that causes generosity by the power of the spirit, by the response to the love that God shows to us, you know, all of that. It's, there's you, you aren't coerced into generosity, right? That's he right. who gives, let him give from a willing heart. You can be coerced into not stealing. Yeah. <laughs> if, if, if inside Am of Am I making Mach- sense? Yeah, no, no, no. I, I think you're right. Okay. Inside of a Machiavellian type of cosmology, yes, but with a biblical cosmology, it's not that you're not just not stealing. Um, right. Loving God and loving your neighbor, uh, <laughs> those two things, there's a reality to. Uh, I love, okay, let me just try and read a little bit of this. I've been reading to the kids the Westminster Confession of Faith and going through just the Ten Commandments. And and this just in this part where it says the duties that are inside the Eighth Commandment, the duties required in the Eighth Commandment are truth, faithfulness, and justice in contracts and commerce between man and man, rendering to everyone his due, restitution of good un, unlawfully detained from the right owners thereof, giving and lending freely according to our abilities and the necessities of others, moderation of our judgments, wills and affections concerning worldly goods. I mean, it goes through and starts laying right. out this type of you when you're not stealing, you're actually not just stealing, you're having an affection for the other person's good. Right? Right. <laughs> right? You want good to come to them and you're seeking a way to be able to bless them. That's what is meant by not stealing. It's not like it's you float in this neutral world where I haven't stole. No, no, no. There is this love for another human being that seeks good for them. Your affections towards them are set completely opposite of stealing. It's not like, oh, you've entered this middle ground where you can just coast there. No, your heart has turned another way towards them, which is right. good towards them. And that's what I think people miss. And they think that there's kind of like this middle road that if we're not doing this, then we've reached the goal. No, 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 no. Um, this is why, you know, you see Jesus, he's following this process. Remember the, the rich young ruler comes in and says, Lord, I've done all these things, right? I've done all these things. Oh, well, sell what you have, give to the poor. Whoa, whoa, <laughs> right? Because we think that, that we, that our cosmology of how we look at the law is like we fulfilled it because we didn't do the things that were negative in it, right? <laughs> but there is a right. part, but is your heart and affections turned the way towards love of your neighbor, right? And that's the other side of this that we don't talk about. And I, but it's, it, that's, and it's invisible to us. I think that's what's so hard is because it's invisible to us. Not only do we not talk about it, we actually can't talk about it. We don't have a vocabulary available to us to talk about it because our, we've been, our understanding of reality has been thinned. Um, mm. To so that there's actually not room for that. But ev- everything is a arm wrestling contest, um, and we think, well, let's just not enter into the arm wrestling contest, right? And 
uh, but you can't fill a void with nothing. And so we try to overcome sin thinking that that means not doing something. And um, we try to put off the old man, but we don't know what it looks like to put on the new man because we don't have a, uh, a nut. There's not, there's not enough room in our cosmology for the new man. So, so, okay. So then, okay. Maybe I don't know how you wrap this in there in the next 10 minutes. Part of the reason that I'm realizing, okay, I need a new cosmology, I need to develop cosmology. And you've kind of given Dante to me to say, hey, you need to be reading Dante. Dante will help you develop this cosmology. Because when you start learning how to read poetry, um, it matures you to see the world as, as it actually is. How do you, <laughs> how do you, how does poetry and cosmology now come to the point where it helps us fight against fascism? <laughs> how the poetic, you know, how how does that? You got cos, you have a broken cosmology somewhere in here that is downstream, and you get fascism, and poetry is supposed to somehow help you get past this stream, back behind your broken cosmology to see properly, kind of like comedians do. Comedians have this ability to communicate to us, even if we don't like them or they don't share our, our worldview. I know comedians who I absolutely loathe. And they'll say something. I'm like, that's a good angle. That's, right. That's, that's that's actually pretty funny. Whoa. And, and I got to think about it because they're so good at getting me to see past where I'm at. And and so how, I, I'm a, I believe poetry helps us do that. So how do how do we engage to be able to see that broken cosmology and repair it with poetry? Well, I think a lot of it has to do with a, a lot of the reason that we're able to be easily manipulated um, is because we don't have the breadth of imagination to think beyond the rivalries that are presented to us. Mm. So mm. that's real. That's good. That's good. Yeah. That's um, and so, uh, but you can't get at it directly because it wasn't built directly. It's built out of what we laughed at as a child. It's built, our, our mm -hmm. imagination is built out, out of what we, what moved us, what was beautiful, the stories we were told and the stories we told. Um, and the, so the, the, uh, uh, what, what we believe is beautiful, um, ends up defining what it is we build. Did I lose say, you? Say that again. Say that again. That's good. So what we, what we what we what we respond to is beautiful ends up defining what it is we believe should be built. But we don't exercise the muscles that build the beauty. Uh, or we don't exercise our our muscles um, very often in terms of you know our response to beauty and, and learning to carefully, you know, I, I don't know. There's not a, there's um, a, a good, a good way to think about it is right. The, Im, um, the doctrine of the impassibility of God. What are the ways that God is different than us? What are the incommunicable attributes? One of them is impassibility. Um, and we tend to say that, 
impassibility means God doesn't have emotions um, or something like that. Um, really, what it means is that God um, doesn't – there is not an outside force that acts upon him the way our mm-hmm. emotions act on us. Something makes us angry, right? Like, right. Something yeah. makes us angry, right? So it's not – so because it says in the Bible, God is angered by this, or, but he's impassable, meaning he doesn't have – there isn't anything that acts upon him. Um, right. He, he is the one um, that acts upon everything else. And so there's, there is um, a, a unity to all that he does where we as creatures – uh, don't we are not in the same position, right? We are our uh, things act upon us all the time, but our creator is constantly acting upon us, just keeping us in existence, keeping keeping us existing. Um, uh, our being is dependent. God's being is independent. There's nothing that can act upon him um, outside of his will, right? Um, there's there's no. Uh, there's, there's, there's not anything that affects his will, um, the way our will that is a created will is affected, you know, by our emotions, by different things like that. Um, but because we know that's true, um, we can look at our response to beauty and know that beauty acts upon us, right? So because that's true, um, we should be learning how to do that well in the best possible way that we can. Well, what um, we we don't um, generally, but it doesn't make it not true. So our imagination has been built up by our responses to beauty throughout our lives. And um, I mean, it's uh, and and we pretty much do nothing about it. I mean, at least as reformed Christians. <laughs> yep basically doing nothing about it. Um, and, and that's, we, and we, so am I making any sense? Uh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I'm trying to talk about poetry, but the reality is we just need to dig in and, and be, be, we're not impassable. We need the poetry to, to build and rebuild us. So, you know, here's okay. <clears throat> Hold on. I lost my headset there. Um, there the, in, the line. Here, here's a here's a, a a good example in um, "Live Not by Lies" by Rod Dreher. He tells the story of some of the families whose children were able to continually resist um, tyranny. Yeah. Tyranny. Every single one of them, he says, how do you do it? How did you do it? They start talking about the stories their parents told them, right? Whether it was um, American Westerns that gave them a deep sense of right and wrong, black hat, white hat morality, um, or it was uh, the Lord of the Rings um, that gave them an understanding of standing even when you think you're going to lose for what's right, right? Every single one of them talked about the stories that they were raised on. They didn't talk. And that's how they were able to resist tyranny f- for generations. 
because their imagination was formed in such a way that tyranny was not attractive to them. You know, you said something. I'm still stuck back here thinking about it. Um, you said that you can't get at it. You can't get at our imaginations directly. Like the problem, right. you, can't, you can't get at it directly. And all we spend our time doing is trying to get at it directly. <laughs> right. And yeah. this is, and, and, and part of the reason that I kind of take the time to have these conversations with you is like, and we started trekking a little different here, even on Knox and Pluck, because we're talking about, we started talking about Gnosticism, start talking about metaphysics, start talking about um, cosmology. And those things are great things to talk about. But then I start realizing that you have, you start having these ivory tower kind of fights and conversations that people want to have um, as soon as you get into this medieval academic world, because I don't know why everybody feels like it's important that they contribute in some sort of um, critical way, but they need to. Um, or they don't like what you say. And the problem isn't so much the criticism of um, the medieval mind or cos uh, or um, or uh, the outcome of how, where our cosmology is. It's more the fact that they have completely different cosmology than we're functioning with. Right. And so I've wanted to move to uh, I, when I made the film, How to Answer the Fool with Saiten Brug and Kate. Um, I saw him going out doing apologetics and I was like, man, like he's so good at this, right? He's, he's really got this down. And I, what I need is I need to create a mechanism, systematize this thing so that I can do exactly what he does. And saw his biggest, biggest anger with me was this isn't a, a mechanistic thing that you can do. Right. This isn't some sort of plug and play setup. That's not what this is. What you're watching is me believing my Bible, the stuff that it says about everything, and then holding people to consider the reality of that and just proclaiming it. That's what I'm doing. And if you try and come up with a system to do what I'm doing, you're going to be a jerk. And boy, <laughs> did we find that. A lot of right. that came out that way, right? We found a lot of people who went that way, who mechanistically created the system so that they can for good of course and they end up being jerks and so now kind of the turn that i feel like that we are taking is we're going to do a lot more reading of dante we're going to work through the poetry we're going to get to the poems we're going to talk about literature in a way in the poetic side of it and the outcomes of it i feel like that's the only option we have now now, now that we have some basic ground rules i think the first thing we had to do for me anyway was wake up and say you don't see the world you have, like you said in the beginning of the conversation, you have scales on your eyes, dragon scales. Your eyes are dragon scaled. And the only way to get past that, the only way to work through that is to work through great poetry. I told my daughter, she's having some stuff she's working through with school and people. She's maturing as a teenager. And I told her, I was like, you need to read your Psalms. You need to read your Psalms. You need to read your Proverbs. You need to read Ecclesiastes, right? Song of Solomon. All You need to read these things. And there's so much great wisdom right here. And the poetry of it is supernatural. And as right. you begin to do that, you will see the world better. And the more that I sing Psalms, the more that I'm engaging with God's word and that, especially the poetry side of it, I'm realizing I'm able to see everything else in a, in a better context, you know? Um, and, and I, I used to hear people, old folks say, well, even the, I don't like the fact they split the Bible, the Gideon Bible. What yeah. is the first thing that they have in there? 
the Psalms. The Book of Psalms. Psalms. Yep. <laughs> and there's a reason for that. They're helping them develop a poetic cosmology, right? Like that's what then they're, you know, I don't even know if that's what their intention was. It probably was like, oh, it's easy to read. So let's put the Psalms in there from the old. <laughs> but uh, um, anyway, I'm sorry. What were you gonna say? Well, and I, I yeah, and I think that it's it's a way of saying i i believe or i agree with god in what kind of creature i am right mm-hmm. that to you because he said hey i'm going to build you into a people and then he gave stories and he gave poetry and he said i'm gonna i'm gonna teach you i'm you know i'm gonna i'm gonna build you into a people he didn't say here's a philosophical treatise on how to build yourselves into a people. Mm. He gave literature. He gave furniture. He gave rituals. He gave poetry. He gave stories. And so um, you'll, you'll hear people every once in a while say, well, the problem with the opening of Genesis is it's the exactly the kind of literature that the Israelites that, that, makes the Israelites become a particular sort of people. And so you can't take it as history because it's too perfect as literature for a, an origin story for these people. When you think, well, no, that's exactly what you should expect. If you've got a poet creator creating a people, right? He created the world out of poetry and now he's creating a people with poetry, right? Um, And we don't, we we want to be thinking man or we want to be economic man. Um, we want to be all these different sorts of other things rather than worshiping man um, and poetic man uh, and the kind of creature that gets to create more of itself um, through marriage. You know, that's that's the that's the center of the kind of creature that we are. Man, this is good. Okay, eventually we're gonna have to get to this poem. <laughs> I don't know about Mark Dotty. Uh, Mark Dotty, yeah. Christmas portions or Messiah. <laughs> Are we trying to get to it now? Yeah. <sighs> it's a long poem, man. It is a long poem, but I I figured why start with something else you know we'll start with something that gives us um that that uh shows us some of the what we're talking about here yeah, um and i'm right at the point we got to break we got to go to um so here's what here's what's crazy is next week the conference is going oh yeah it's on thursday and i'm out of town i leave town monday so i'll be traveling monday tuesday and I think I'll land in town Wednesday, so we'll be off next week. But um, I still want to do something as soon as I get – oh, actually, I think the week after that too, I'll be just getting back in town till that next Tuesday. So we're going to miss two knocks on plugs. Um, hey, what do you think about doing a, a poetry class? I I think it would be great. I mean, if we could gather the people, I'm totally up for it. I mean, just doing a full class on poetry next week. 
Oh, but, just just recording something, just talking about poetry. Yeah. What do you I think can about do that? plug, and then I get to watch it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What what maybe, do I use to record it? Just the same thing. You just pop okay. on here into restream, and um, and do it. I'm. I. I want. I wish I could. Yeah, you can just pop on to restream and do it right here. Um. I and you're so right about this, bro. We we just gotta do this. It's enough talking about it now. Let's just. I I gotta tell you, as I was reading Dante this morning, I've been thinking. I've been engulfed in politics. I stayed up super late last night, going through all the politics and the shows going on and everything there and thinking about all the arguments against their position and so on and so forth. And, um, and then I started reading Dante, um, Canto five. Okay. And for, it just brought me back to real life. You know, it, <laughs> yeah, it's, it, it's, it's got a rehumanizing effect. Yeah. And I, I picked up on my emotions and my attitude about, as I was watching, as I was reading it, I was like, this nourishes me better than all the news shows that I watch. And I watch the news shows because it's part of my business that I'm in, but I know that it has an effect on me too. I'm not right. to that. And as I'm listening to Dante or reading Dante, I'm noticing the effect that it's having on me. And I'm noticing that my mind switches out differently to engage it because of the poetry. And it just feeds me differently. And I, I think differently. I'm seeing I'm uh, my muscles. Uh, when you start working out, especially as an athlete, and you get to a certain place where you've trained, and then your muscles have this flitch reaction. And I'm starting to feel that reaction now when I read Dante, like, ooh, I'm picking up on this. Oh, I'm getting yeah. that. Um, uh, and so... And it's just it's just helping me see the world a lot better. So, but yeah, man, if you want to, <clears throat> you don't have to, but I think it'd be really cool because um, did you never find those your lectures? Did you? I no, I can't. I can't find them. I I did find one of my old drives um, today, so I'm gonna actually go right after this. I'll go search it. Let me know because I. But um, if not, I think it might be really cool for you just to do a standalone on poetry. Okay. And yeah, 30 minutes or whatever you want to do, but I think it might be really helpful because if I'm starting to get people messaging me on Facebook asking about what I need to start at, um, that means they're not going back and listening to some of the old unplugs. They're just picking up wherever they are and they're finding yeah. us and they're just like, what do I start? You know? So I just want to answer those as we move along. But man, I want to talk about Dante Canto five as well. Um, so much there just dealing with the um, issue of lust and yeah and kind of the connection how all of it's connected there um is there any particular one in here that you like more than another that you want to hit on Kanto wise yeah i don't want to um, hold back from i don't want you waiting for me uh i'll, I'll let me let me look through and because you know, I'm just decide. I'm just going through it, man. So whatever you think that 
if you ever want to skip ahead and say, hey, let's talk about this. I just thought the fascism stuff was fantastic. That was good. Oh, good. I think, I mean, I think it's, it, it's on people's minds right now. I had somebody bring it up, just a, a friend. He's not a Christian guy. He just, he was like, man, did you hear? Apparently a crazy fascist was just elected in Italy. And I was, and I was like, uh, I hadn't heard anything at that point. Um, but my first thought was, I don't trust anybody to actually know what fascism is. Cause I never, nobody ever meet that uses the word knows what the word means. I mean, no, they really don't. It's no, a really, really strange and interesting um, situation to have a, a word that's thrown around so much to literally have been sucked free of meaning. Um, <laughs> it's crazy. Um, do you have some sort of etymology that um, you can send me on that at all? I'd love to be able to hit that on cross politic too, because I, it is going. Yeah, let me see if I can find it. I know that um, the Oxford English Dictionary has got the, the one you sent uh, me? fasci, but fascism wasn't invented as a word yet. Well, it was, oh. but fa- uh, fascian fascism, fa- uh, fasciona, fasciona, I think, just means witchcraft um, in <laughs> Middle English. So it's really ironic, um, but it's not. It's not the. I don't think it's the same Italian root word but i think it's fasci just means bundle um and but yeah let me let me uh i'll I'll find that etymology and anything that you have that's not in i'd love to be able to i think that that's a definition needs to come back because um people are talking about fascists and then neo-fascists and and so i don't have every time i've tried to find a definition of it they're so vague that yep. I have no idea what they're talking about. What I think that's the difficulty good. is the new yeah. definition. If if meaning is just whatever it's used for, which is one of the definitions, um, meaning is use. It's a, a Wittgenstein, who was the German British philosopher of language that kind of rules most journalism right now. Meaning is he just said meaning is use. Um, and so however it's being used is the real meaning of the word. Um, that's not, that's not true, but it is one meaning of the word, but every dictionary online dictionaries are constantly being changed for that reason. So they're constantly being updated. Um, so I, I would check that old Webster's. I don't have that in my office, but that would have been interesting to see if the word had been invented yet when that was published. Yeah. I'll check it out, man. Definitely, but yeah, I'll I'll find you the etymology. I know I know you can find that. Yeah, yeah, and I don't know. I mean, anything you find that on how it's used, how it sh- used to be used, and what it means, that would be really great to be able to kind of disperse. I think this is going to be pretty impactful too. So, oh, thank you, bro. This yeah, yeah, uh, appreciate it. All right, I'll keep you. Let me know what you want to do with poetry, and um, okay, you log in stuff. Awesome. All right, bro. All right. See ya. Bye.